This episode of the Check Out This Record podcast is brought to you by GuitarExclusive.com. Visit now for buying guides, reviews, and more. GuitarExclusive.com. Hello there, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Rock, Rock, Rock and Roll podcast. Check out this record here and ready to combat those who didn't like the last time we did an episode like this. My name is Frank, and with me is my good friend who's always by my side, Mark. Make me sound so clingy. <laughs> well, well, okay. Uh, you can always find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music Podcasts, and of course, what we're doing here on YouTube. Uh, but when you ask, great question. Thank you so much for asking. New episodes drop each and every Friday-ish. That's right. And if you're hearing us for the first time, welcome. welcome. We review records and we have lots of musical discussions. So tell your friends. So if all your friends, I'm sorry, are all of a sudden passing up those Pearl Jam records in the store, reaching for something a little better, that's probably because of us. Yeah, that's in right. addition to our reviews, we do spotlight episodes mm-hmm. and even looking at some rock and roll mysteries. Ooh. Okay, so uh, you definitely want to check out our verse series where Frank and I will duke it out on behalf of two bands or albums for something we like to call Total Stereo Domination. Nice, nice. Thank you. While you're checking that out, uh, be sure to check out the Instagram and the Facebook group. Hopefully, these episodes, of course, will leave you wanting more of our musical goodness. And if you got a record that you want us to check out, uh, drop us a comment where you find us. Maybe we'll do it. Maybe not. But maybe we maybe. will. And while you're at it, subscribe, rate, and review. So, of course, I always say this, Mark. Right. Uh, Led Zeppelin 2, the follow-up to our Led Zeppelin 1 episode. And again, mm-hmm. I want to reiterate that the intent here mm-hmm. is to objectively look at their catalog because right. they were never a big influence on us. Okay. So a better way to do it than to take each album and then conclude if we feel the consensus rating is justified or perhaps it's not. Now that's us not just trying to take a dump on the band uh, that so many of you love out there. That's not the intent at all. This is us going through a self-discovery to really see if we miss something along the way. I stress that. Because last time we did this on the old YouTube, uh, they mm-hmm. seemed that it's clickbait. And I'm here to say it's right. not clickbait at all. Okay. So yeah. please listen to the episode. Uh, Mark, uh, you're anxious, right? To jump into this record, especially after that first one fell a little flat for you, right? Yeah, I yeah, am, Frank. You know, that first album, despite having a handful of, of classics, didn't feel like it had much direction. And the band's all over the place approach. Um, just really, you know, it, it really threw me off. And the amount of repurposed uh, stuff, re- again, it really threw me off. Only being familiar with the hits, I, I wasn't expecting Led Zeppelin 1 to be what it was. So getting into 2, I'm looking to see if they have more of a cohesive sound. And if it's more of the same kind of misguided idea and thievery as before, or like I said, will, will it be more cohesive? I, I, I don't know. So let's I mean, I up- do know, but... You know, right. <laughs> that's the way I went into it. <laughs> well, let's pick up where we left off, right, on uh, from the last episode. So Led Zeppelin 1 was released January 12, 1969. And October 22nd, 1969, we get Led Zeppelin 2. So in the same calendar year, produced mm-hmm. by Jimmy Page, 
This album was recorded from January to August in various sessions in the UK and North America while the band was on tour. This album would show an evolution from the blues tunes that we heard on the first record to more of a riff bass heavy sound. In fact, many consider this the band's heaviest album. Right, That's what they say. Uh, because it was written on tour, there was a sense of urgency and improvisation during the songwriting process. The variety of re- uh, recording studios uh, produced some favorable setups and some non-favorable setups. Robert Plant would complain about this. Uh, engineer Eddie Kramer gave credit to Page for the sound of the album. Uh, Mark, what's a Led Zeppelin record without any drama, right? Uh, you know, looking back on their career and, and Page and Plant as a duo, it almost feels like the drama was part and parcel with the with the rest of the catalog. Uh, it feels uh, a lot like they love to be at somebody's throat just at all times. It, it's inherent to them. They just they just yeah. love they love doing it. Um, like last time, we looked at the album's cover. So let's look at the album's cover and artwork. So the first record, of course, gave us the rendition of the Hindenburg disaster. This time around, we get a design based on a poster from David Juniper, a student at Sutton Art College. The design we see is based off of a photograph, and I'm going to ruin this word, of mm-hmm. the Jag Staffel 11 Division of the German Air Force during World War I, known as the Flying mm-hmm. Circus, led by Red Baron, not the pizza. Not Snoopy. Nor Snoopy. <laughs> Four of the flyers' heads were replaced by members of the band with facial hair and sunglasses. Uh, there are also faces of other people, such as French actress Delphine Syring. Uh, and then in the background is an outline of the Zeppelin from the first record or the from or from the Hindenburg. Uh, mm-hmm. Mark, you're looking at this artwork. Ed, how do you think this stacks up uh, actually against the first record? Compared to the first album cover, th- this one's really dull. That said, this looks like pop art from 1969. <laughs> it is interesting that like much of their music, they chose a piece of art uh, that was one thing and simply slapped their faces on it. I mean, it kind of tells you a lot about their career. Uh, I mean, it, like the cover of Led Zeppelin 1, they were retrofitting it for their needs. So stylistically, it matches, right? They're a pair in that way. But again, compared to Led Zeppelin 1, this is boring as hell. Yeah, I like the Led Zeppelin one better because then they made it at least like, you know, that lithograph style, black and white, a little red touch to it. So it was almost a piece of art. This to me is kind of just... It plopped together. Here we go. A lot of of poo-poo brown on this one. Yeah, not a fan of the brown. No, no. Well, let's get to the song. So it's nine tracks, (laughs) 41 minutes and 38 seconds. Uh, track one, a whole lot of love. Uh, songwriting credits, Page, Plant, Bonham, Jones, and Dixon. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's Willie Dixon who wrote the song, You yeah, Need Love, them. which came out in 1962 uh, with a famous recording, of course, by Muddy Waters. Now, in 1966, I want to note the band Small Faces released a song called You Need Loving. Vocalists and guitarists for that band, Steve Marriott, stated that Page and Plant would attend their gigs and expressed interest in the song. Here we are already, Mark. You need love. You need loving. Whole lot of love. Uh, it's a very sexually charged song for the time. The key of E. About a minute thirty into the song, we get a breakdown of the drums and some backwards vocals by Plant. Often regarded as one of the band's uh, best songs uh, and greatest of all time. Mark, uh, what, what's your thoughts on this whole thing I just said? Is this regarded as one of the band's best songs? Because uh, I mean, okay, 
Uh, let's get the, the monkey off my back, at least. Good <laughs> on them for actually crediting Willie Dixon right out of the gate. Uh, I don't love this as the album's opener. The drum break and the guitar sound effects and plants orgasming right off the bat sets a, a weird tone for the rest of the album, which goes in very different direction. Uh, it feels more like a, a closing number to me. Uh, there are so many effects going on that it's really... Uh, it really feels super jumbled to me, and and I just don't know why people insist that this is one of their best songs or one of the best rock and roll songs of all time. It, I'm just baffled by that statement. Um, track two, what is yeah. and what should never be. Uh, this the is just song. yeah, just page and plan on the writing credits. Uh, one of the first songs to be recorded with the iconic Les Paul that Page would be known for. Uh, compared to the Telecaster that was used in the first record, you're going to get a bolder tone as opposed to a brighter tone. So uh, it's perfect if you're looking for some crunch with those riffs. Uh, the verses actually showcase Plant's vocals uh, with phasers, which I prefer a uh, phase effect, which I prefer they didn't and they didn't exist because to me, it just creates absolute distraction. Uh, I did enjoy when the song simmered down and allowed for Page to give us that impressive soloing. Uh, I know Whole Lot of Love is more popular, but Mark, I actually like the composition this composition better. What what about you? Yeah, I, I like this song a, a lot more too. Uh, I just don't get putting these effects on on Plant's voice in the opening. Otherwise, it's a pretty solid blues rock number, right? Uh, it's uh, it is interesting to see the band using uh, these peaks and valleys approach two songs in a row where we get. Uh, a quiet part and then a loud part and then a quiet part and a loud part and a riff and then a loud part and then, you know, wash repeat. Um, all, all I'm saying is the song structure wise the pattern is starting to become a little bit more clear here. Um, that may be part of their signature sound. And some people might just be like yelling at their, in their car right now. Like, dude, what are you talking about? That's just what Led Zeppelin sounds like. I, I, I don't know. Um, <laughs> Yeah, or maybe it's just something they borrowed from Jeff Beck. I don't know. Oh, there we go. <laughs> Track three, the lemon song. We love a good lemon, right, Mark? We sure do. Uh, Howlin' Wolf, a.k.a. Chester Burnett in 1964, released the song Killing Floor, which is the basis for this song. Um, what this rendition features is a loud and chaotic jamming, which gives us the heaviness that we didn't see in the first record. Uh, Plan is also singing the blues at a hyper-fast pace during points of the song. Uh, my wish is if there were more memorable melodies uh, in the rendition uh, and their rendition of the, of the Killing Floor. I, I think adding that would have separated itself from the original tune, as opposed to me thinking it was basically uh, that Howling Wolf song with just some more bells and whistles. Uh, Mark, what about you here? Uh, you know, I like the tone. I like the energy here. Uh, it's nice to see them break that pattern that I was just picking up on. So they're really keeping it a little bit more interesting in the album without ve veering too far off the... Um, off the track, but we all know that it's coming back. And, you know, my one wish was that I was listening to Howling Wolf's Killing Floor instead. <laughs> there you go. Track four. Thank you, Mark. For thank what? you. Well, you'll oh, okay. see. <laughs> uh, Page and Plant with the writing credits on this one. Uh, Plant penned the lyrics um, as a uh, tribute to his then wife, Maureen. Uh, it's a delicate ballad with um, very 1960s pop sensibility in the key of D major. Uh, I'm sure Greta Van Fleet used this as the template for their song, You're the One. No. Mm -hmm. No. 
Mm-hmm. I know it's in the late 60s here and the organs were a thing, um, but I could do without its full use. I'm not saying don't have it in the song, but I could do without its full use. Uh, this is where I would like to have a uh, two guitar song. So you get nice full chords and then the solos and the riffs over it. I think that would have um, added a little bit more meat to it. Um, that's just my personal taste. Uh, Mark, did you want to thank me yet for picking this episode? I sure do, buddy. Thanks. Yeah, the organ definitely feels like, uh, hey, the 60s are almost over. Let's not allow people to forget that we <laughs> happened in the 60s kind of moment. Uh, hey, why wasn't this the closer, or at least like on the back half of the album, second to last, maybe? Just like with Led Zeppelin 1, I, I don't feel like they were thinking about the album as a whole when they were putting it mm. together it feels like they're just stacking songs on top of each other without regard to the, the the whole album flow um i could totally be wrong page was known for being a control freak so maybe <laughs> this was intentional but it's hard to understand why he would have chosen this kind of placement at all yeah 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 i hear you well, well, track five is Heartbreaker, uh, an iconic riff that moves up a step. And the late, great Eddie Van Halen would cite that the solo was the origin behind the tapping technique. He stated oh. the following. Uh, I think I got the idea of tapping, watching Jimmy Page do his Heartbreaker solo back in 1971. He was doing a pull-off to an open string. And I thought, wait a minute, open string pull-off? I could do that. But what if I used my finger as the nut moved it around? I just kind of took it and ran with it. Um, Mark, where are you on the song Heartbreaker? Uh, I'm right where I just hope somebody can edit all of those dirty words you just said into like <laughs> just you saying a really dirty thing. Um, <laughs> no, Frank, this is a solid blues rock number. Plant's vocals are, are probably some of the best on the album here. Paige's solo is really cool, and, and Bonham and John Paul Jones are just absolutely on point. Uh, I wish this was the album we were just rocking to numbers like this yeah. but um heartbreaker is a cool number man yeah well what else i think is a cool number is the next one living loving mage she's just a woman uh, mm-hmm. about a groupie who used to stalk the band and is one of ironically page's least favorite led zeppelin songs it was never performed in concert <laughs> um i actually like because it's short and punchy by nature it actually possesses some of those memorable melodies that are not found in the straight up blues renditions it also doesn't drag and being that's under three minutes you know i'm a fan of that uh mark how, how you holding up here buddy Paige hated it, and it's probably one of my favorite songs on the <laughs> album. Uh, it's got much more 60s pop appeal uh, than the rest of the album, and, and John Paul Jones gets some really oh, cool yeah. slicks in here, yep. too. Uh, the lyrics are kind of nonsense, but I, I don't think anyone is here for Plant to Change Their Life with any of his song's lyrics, and, and that's absolutely fine. Uh, not everyone can be Springsteen before the 80s. You know sure. what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah, so, you, <laughs> you know, I, I definitely I agree with you. This is a cool number. It, it's probably from another band that they should have done that was more pop oriented um because i think this would have been another really cool song absolutely man absolutely and uh track seven ramble on so uh influenced by lord of the rings um (laughs) why not Mortar and Golem are referenced. Uh, I'm all in for a good tune based on a literary work. Uh, and there are some high spots with the overall energy. But I was, for the most part, I think, wanting this song to end. Uh, speaking of the end, uh, the outro, uh, I found it tough with, again, the echoing of the vocals. It was really an, ins- an assault on my uh, senses. Um, I guess, Mark, am I just rambling on here? 
You aren't. Uh, plant might be a bit, though. Yeah. Uh, You'll notice uh, this is the second time he's referenced 10 years gone by ah. in the album. Uh, the end of the song is interesting as that audio assault, uh, excuse me, as that audio assault peaks on Frank's senses, they start fading the song out and you, you, you can almost miss the addition of him referring to his baby as a bluebird, whatever that means. Uh, it's a long fade out too, which is like, it's kind of weird. It's like 40 seconds. All of a sudden the songs just like starts careening downward, um, which sucks. Cause when, when Moby Dick uh, kicks the, the song levels jump dramatically up, right? Right. Right. So it's this really odd juxtaposition of sound for, you know, an album put together by such a control freak. It seems like, I don't know, maybe he, didn't actually give a shit the way you people think he did. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, again, back to your point earlier with the album flow. Uh, it's not, that's another example. So there you go. <laughs> well, eight is Moby Dick, as Mark was saying, spawned from jamming and improvisation in the studio. We have an instrumental that has a drum solo that mm-hmm. when performed live went anywhere between 10 and 30 minutes. Um, Bonham would break his drumsticks often from playing too hard and even causing him to draw blood. Uh, Mark, this is your department all the way with the drums. Uh, mm-hmm. What do you say? One of the, the greatest drum solos ever? It really could be, man. Uh, however, uh, let's talk about the song first. I love the clickety-clack snare burst uh, for the song's intro, even though it's really kind of just like a quick verse together. Um you know, it, the way they come in together is great, but I hate that they'd stop it dead for a full four count before Bottom comes in with a solo. It feels like they could like like they could have worked out a smoother transition for him, at least in the editing, uh, so that the song for the editing of the song so he didn't look like he didn't know what he was doing. It seems like to me, and I'm just speculating here that Paige uh, wanted to steal a little bit of his thunder by making his signature track uh, poke a little hole in it. Uh, it's just me. Uh, he was such a dynamic drummer, and to hear him really take his time building up the solo and beating the hell out of it is really cool. He didn't play a massive kit yet, which is really important to know. Right. So his drummer heroes played a huge part in what makes this solo so cool. You can really hear that influence in his soloing. We're talking about guys like Buddy Rich, uh, the old jazz drummers from like the 30s and 40s that were such a big uh, influence on him, despite having never played in any jazz bands either that we know of. With that right. said, t- to answer your question, Frank, yeah, there is a probability it's it will be remembered as one of the greatest uh, solos in rock and roll history. And John uh, Bonzo Bonham uh, earned the shit out of that designation. I, nice. I think that's absolutely fair. My, awesome, awesome. Well, track nine, Mark, and the last one, we're bringing it on home. Uh, Willie Dixon again gets writing credits as the intro and outro are straight up. Uh, the the same with the middle of the track being original. Uh, it's loud and it's heavy with some classic Zeppelin riffs. Uh, it's something we haven't heard already in the short album of only nine songs, which is a blues riff. And guess what? The key of E. Uh, as someone who prefers minor keys, such as myself, I would have liked to have seen them make an appearance. I think that would have been a good and somber way to end a record. Um, Mark, do you think they brought it on home with this number? No, man. Uh, coming in off the high of Moby Dick, there's no way this minute and 45 second long ass intro is going to satisfy the the groove. Uh, the they work it into works, but without a doubt, what 
what's the point in a blues number here? It's so like it just pisses me off that I can't like it's making me upset. I mean, like, <laughs> good for them for giving credit again where it's due to Willie Dixon, uh, you know, the music that inspired them, uh, and for doing a solid job of paying homage to it. But that overbloated intro just drags the end of the album out and pays off nothing. There's just nothing there. There's no satisfaction to it especially if you come off that high of moby dick and you just get this long boring intro you're like <laughs> what is it what is, was this just left over did you you just needed to fill the last minute of go. time on this thing because you rushed it through during tour <sighs> and only nine tracks <laughs> well so that wraps up the album but what we want to do like last time is is take mm-hmm. a couple of things such as reception legacy of course our assessment and then and there are a couple other factors so uh, let's go through the reception um of led zeppelin 2 uh it was the band's first number one in the u.s knocking abbey road from the top spot um by 1970 it had three million in american sales whole lot of love was the band's biggest hit and this album helped Zeppelin become a sought-after international attraction. Now, some of the initial reviews are not overflowing with positivity, citing that it was just one heavy song extended over two sides of a record. Uh, a month after its release, though, it went certified gold. Uh, Mark, your thoughts on all that? Frank, you know I like a good uh, blues rock band, and this is definitely a blues rock album. Uh, There are clearly some 60s pop influences here as well, though. Uh, And while I wouldn't say it's one heavy song extended across both sides of the album, I can imagine at the time it came out, it would have been the heaviest rock album to hit the mainstream uh, and take off, which would have been jarring to folks coming up against an album like Abbey Road. So I kind of understand why why it threw people off, but at the same time, you know, you and I have the benefit of of hindsight, and we can kind of go like, "Is it that heavy?" Right, right. right. Yeah. Which we'll get to. Which we'll get right. to. Um, legacy. Um, so Stephen Thomas Erwine, uh, editor oh, right. of All Music, said that the record provided the blueprint for all all the heavy metal bands that followed. It is also said that it was a more focused effort where the band was honing in on their sound. Uh, Robert Santelli, author of the big book of blues, said the band quickly moved from its blues rock influence and went into the unexplored territory of hard rock. It was also credited with the shift in hard rock uh, and eventual metal songs being riff based. And of course, Page's work and Heartbreaker leading the way for people like Eddie Van Halen. Mark? I think some of those statements are pretty fair, right? This this is more of a focused album than Led Zeppelin one, or at least it feels that way. But that's that's a low bar if you remember my complaints about Led Zeppelin one. Oh, I do. Um, to additionally echo what I said uh, there when I was talking about Led Zeppelin creating a genre, they pushed hard rock into the mainstream, maybe, but this was really still a blues rock album at best with their heavier album, right? And and it's fair to say that they laid some of the groundwork for many albums metal albums to come excuse me uh in the same way that stefan wolf the who deep purple and black sabbath did because they all put out albums this year as well Uh, the difference being that sabbath took the same rock and blues roots and made it a whole new sound uh didn't just simply reshape something else they created something new with it yeah yeah yeah, very true. Yep. 
All right, so it's time for our assessment. Here we go again, and this is the part, of course, we break it down, and we break it down by musicianship. Break it down. Break it down. Uh, musicianship, song choices, and quality. Uh, and then we're going to um, what you know give the rating. So, Mark, let's, stop with, uh, let's start with musicianship. Uh, sure. The quality is there, and from what we saw on the first record, that hasn't changed for me. Uh, they're recording in different areas. Therefore, causing different techniques to be used can be heard, and I'm sure many out there can can point those particulars out, um, and therefore it may be not being best or consistent. But I don't think, to me personally, it was a hindrance. Um, Jones on bass is still giving us a great performance, and Bonham on drums was really showing why he was one of the all-time greats. The shift to a harder style, I think, uh, fits a, a character like Bonham a little bit better. He was able to be more erratic and getting out that inner demon, so to speak. Um, I'm sure that was very therapeutic for him. Now, Paige's guitar playing sounds smoother and full on tone as a Les Paul owner, this guy. Uh, that's the strength of that guitar. Uh, it's very full and natural tone, but when you need to crank it up and reach some of those high notes, uh, it's there for you like a very loyal companion. Uh, now we get to Plant's vocals. Uh, I'd rather have no effects, not no effects, no effects on the vocals. Uh, the phaser and the echo really diminish the experience for me. It's distracting. And even in the highlight, it highlights how the vocals can just become uh, ear grating after a while. Mark? Yeah, yeah. Look, John Paul Jones can be seen as the weakest link in this band, and that's just, just not the case at all. He's a stellar baseman, and you can really hear him work his magic here. Uh, as for Bonham, he lives up to his legacy on this album, right? His timing is impeccable. His grooves are tight, and his solos are fill, uh, his solos and fills are bombastic and cathartic. Page's guitar play uh, is, as his legacy would suggest, explosive and powerful. Plant singing is fine as frank mentioned i could use uh less effects and and personally the the whole like overly sexy thing does nothing for me no. uh you know i don't need him simulating an orgasm on a record <laughs> it, just, it just does nothing for me or me um you know that said uh, i'm with frank on this one stop putting shit on his voice like leave him alone let him sing naturally right. and i think that's where some of those different recording setups are are really the problem here because they had to mess with his voice to get it. And you don't get a consistent sound out of him specifically throughout these recordings. Could that just be Paige making sure that Plant doesn't sound as good as he does and fucking with him because he needs to be the, the hero of the band the whole time? No. I don't know. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, that, that's, true. you know, when it comes to musicianship, that's how I feel about it. Well, song choices and song quality. So three out of the nine songs were covers or renditions, which is an improvement. And I enjoyed more of the original plant page pen tunes uh, than what I just mentioned. It's only non, I'm sorry, it's only nine songs. So I know it's not a lot of tracks to separate yourself, uh, especially if you're going in, uh, in a particular style. However, I'd like to point, point out the following. A whole lot of love was in the key of E. Uh, what is and what should never be was in the key of A. Um, these are all major, by the way. Lemon was in the key of E. Uh, mm-hmm. Thank You was in the key of D. Uh, mm-hmm. Heartbreaker was in the key of A. Uh, Living mm-hmm. Loving was in the key of A. Ramble On mm-hmm. was in the key of E. Moby Dick was in the key of D. And Bring It On Home was in the key of E. <sighs> My point in bringing this up is that they're all major. And I think that's why many of the riffs and the songs maybe did blend together and did sound the same. 
Because when I was then breaking them down on the riffs, I was like, oh, it's kind of just little variations. Now, I know what someone's going to say. Some are going to say, oh, well, most blue tunes are played in the key of E and A. Oh, okay. And do something different. Like I get this 1969 and things are still forming within the song construction landscape. Um, so there wasn't maybe a need to venture out yet, but this was the venturing out, right? right. This is what it was supposed to be. However, yeah. you know, I felt that this has led uh, to a lack of variance and I would have liked some, like I said before, minor chords and, and just more thought when giving us an album, maybe again, back to the flow thing that you were saying, Mark, what nine songs where four of them are in E, three are in A, two are in D. Um, some may think that's not a big deal, but it's Led Zeppelin, right? One of the greatest bands ever, regardless of our opinion, I expect more anytime I see their yeah. name slapped to a piece of music. Mark? I'll agree with you that uh, more original songs was a nice change. And, and credit where it's due, Upfront was, uh, was a pleasant change for the guys that they, they borrowed songs from. However, Bring It On Home felt like it was a leftover from the first album. Mm. Whole lot of love and what it is and what should never be with their heavy use of effects made them feel like they were from just another project uh, as well and, and feel out of place against the rest of the album. Uh, bringing me back to my earlier statement that when it, when it came to the overall flow of this album, it just doesn't work. Uh, how do you not close on Moby Dick? I mean, it's, it makes no sense to me. Heartbreaker would have been a much better opener. Whole Lot of Love isn't a bad opener, but with all the reverb on the guitar in that opening rift, it feels like you're picking up a conversation after an insult and, and you're just not sure what the hell is going on. <laughs> uh, plus, once you get past that opening rift, it's not an opening track. Again, maybe another closer or the, the last track on the A side makes more sense. But as the opener, it, it, it just doesn't work for me. And it really starts the album off on this odd footing. Uh, but, but what do I know? I don't have any gold albums, uh, let alone <laughs> uh, a gold album with a guitar doodling that sounds like farts in the opening track. Hey. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> All right. So here it comes. That point where we go over, under, and just right. So here are the rankings. Uh, you know, Many guitarists ranked it in the top 50 influential guitar albums of all time. Um, uh, that's guitarist to publication, too, might add. Uh, Mojo rated it one of the 100 greatest records of all time at number 41. A stupid and meaningless Rolling Stone had it at 123 on their 500 greatest albums of all time, which they'll probably retract and apologize for. Uh, Rock Hard had it at 318 for its 500 greatest rock and metal albums. And it was on the 1001 albums you need to hear before you die. And from fans, it seems like to, it is in the top tier when ranked against the other Zeppelin records. So here I am still not influenced by this record, Mark. And right. I'll, and I'll tell you why. Um, tell yeah. So, you know, I think, when we're hearing these songs, maybe we're in that crowd that we're hearing it differently, maybe than other people. Could it be our age? I mean, listen, by the time Led Zeppelin became to be a known entity in our world, we already heard grunge and punk and metal and rock bands that gave us our initial influences. So for me, I was just indifferent. Maybe if this was 1969, that would be different. However, yep. I'm also going to refer to some science here, Mark, and the fact that this just translates differently for us. 
Now, here we go. Some boring stuff, but important stuff. Mm-hmm. Harvard sure. Medical School did a study and found that when the inner ear receives sounds, it triggers a reaction from the different brain cells that are responsible for transmitting that information to your brain. Okay. The triggering forms different types of patterns that in turn touch different parts of the brain, explaining why we associate certain sounds with certain memories and feelings. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now, when sound bounces off structures of the inner ear, it reflects off the ear and off the bones in the head. So according to the Acoustical Society of America, even the slightest difference in things like shape and bone density make a yeah. huge difference in the vibrations that we ultimately hear. All right. So in a nutshell, it doesn't move me, but it does move others. And I think this is a better record than the first one. And I would give it six and a half out of 10. And I feel it's slightly overrated with regards to the previously mentioned accolades. Mark. You know, you make a a great point, Frank. This isn't 1969. So for us, it's, it's not breaking any new ground. And it wasn't a part of our youth to pave the way for the things we ended up listening to and and that paved new ground for us. Uh, Though I'm sure if we talk to our influences about it, they'd probably say it had a bigger effect on them than it did for us. Right. Uh, Definitely better than Led Zeppelin one. I'm going to say this gets bit overrated as an album. I think your accolades there kind of, help me justify that well it's structured better than one if we're honest uh, about the band we know that that's actually a lower bar than anyone uh wants to give them credit for because that first album wasn't structured at all and this thing was clearly barely even structured um the the album as a whole uh we're focused solely on individual tracks without regards to how the whole album yep flows together album this is an album podcast Uh, i agree with you (laughs) 6.5 out of 10 sound seems fair uh so i'll tag along with you on that rating slightly overrated 6.5 and you know to everyone out there i'm hopeful and i'm wanting the next ones to be better okay so i'm wanting as we go along on these for them to hopefully get better and maybe for us to find our our favorite zeppelin album in the mix you know for sure Absolutely. It'd be cool. I would love to not hate a record. Right, right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, Mark, listen, that, that was fun. Um, what do we have in store next week? Uh, so this had me thinking about blues rock a lot. And I Ooh. thought, what is the polar opposite of Led Zeppelin that still kind of qualifies as, as bluesy rock? Uh, and that would be punk blues mm. so we're gonna do 2013's desperation by the band the oblivions when you look them up you're just gonna look up oblivions um these guys are from memphis tennessee uh really crazy kind of album we'll get into their whole backstory because there's a lot of backstory lots of other bands that they were in lots of moving pieces really kind of interesting band uh a lot of fun record it doesn't take itself nearly as seriously. People are going to be like so fucking pissed when I give it a better rating than Led Zeppelin. <laughs> but look, again, this is this is about what moves us at Led Zeppelin 2. I think it's 6.5 considering how poorly Led Zeppelin 1 did. It did a better job, but I mean, ugh. I I agree. And listen, you know, when when they start coming after us, they're going to simply say yep. what exactly that we said verbatim are you just yep. with? That's that's all I'm going to want to know. So, yeah. 
Moby Dick rules though. <laughs> there you go. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay, cool. I, you know, I now looking at this cover mark, this is one mm-hmm. I'm sure in my deep dives of Spotify that I've seen before, but I've never given it cool. the attention and I'm excited for that. I'm glad you kind of piggybacked off of what we've been doing and, and kind of went with this. So I'm really excited for desperation, the 2013 album by it's oblivions or the oblivions. Oblivions. It's oblivions. the easiest way to find it is just oblivions, but anywhere you see them written about, they're always referred to as the oblivions. So, I mean, it, it kind of, it's one of those things. It's just an odd name. Cool, man. Cool. Well, mm-hmm. I, I love it. Can't wait. It's going to be fun. Uh, thank you everyone for joining. Uh, remember to like subscribe, rate review, and of course be safe out there. Oh man, can you believe we made it to the end of another episode? Oh. Uh, thanks for listening. Because without you, uh, like I always say, it's just me and Frank having the same conversation. But we get to do <laughs> intros and intros now. Uh, so s- say it with me. Oh my my. Oh hell yes. Oh bye bye. Did you guys trash Led Zeppelin again? <laughs> I think my mom likes. Is I... it? Is my? Is it? No, my mom has the thing for Jim Morrison, not for Robert Plant. Oh, okay. Yeah. She gets hot under the collar for Jim. Oh, okay.